Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back to Point of Origin. This is our very last episode of the season, and it is a special one to capstone a recurring theme, not just from this season, but ultimately our entire podcast series. Today, we're talking about justice within the food system, its absence, and the circumstances that lead to lacking. Now, you might have heard of the term food desert as a means of describing these circumstances, but food apartheid, which is the title of today's episode, is more forceful, it's more succinct, and frankly, it's just a more accurate term. So we will discuss the importance of specificity and language when talking about food justice. And to do so, we have exactly the right person. It happens to be the same person who coined the term, in fact, that is the Bronx resident and activist, the legend Karen Washington. We also chat with Mr. Bryant Terry, BT, my brother, an award-winning author and chef-in-residence of the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, and longtime food justice activist. Finally, we close with Dr. Hannah Garth, author and anthropologist whose first cameo was so strong this season, we're having her back again. Today, she and I will compare and contrast food systems in the U.S. and Cuba, the ways in which each of the systems fails its constituents, and how ultimately systemic racism endures in both. Today on Point of Origin, it's food apartheid. You know the Boogie Down Bronx. We're not Brooklyn. We are the other B, the Bronx. That's Karen Washington. You know, I mean, I think that's what makes the Bronx so strong because of the fact that for years we've always gone without limited resources and always turned to our community for strength and resiliency. Karen has been an activist for decades, promoting urban farming as a means of accessing fresh and locally grown food, at first for her family and subsequently her entire community. In the New York borough of the Bronx, Karen has turned empty lots into community gardens for years. In 2010, she co-founded the Black Urban Growers, and she is the co-owner and farmer at Rise and Root Farm in Chester, New York. 
during the late uh, 1960s and 70s, when uh, New York and so many uh, urban cities were going through financial and fiscal crisis, the Bronx literally was burning. And it wasn't because of the community. The truth is, is that a lot of landlords, you know, torched the building to get insurance money. And as a result, there was a huge movement they call white flight of people fleeing the Bronx and going to the suburbs. And those that could not leave just were there in, in devastation. But again, those people that could not move got together from the ashes, rebounded, and worked on fighting for affordable housing, fighting for green space, fighting for jobs, fighting for better education, overcrowding school, fighting to get the drugs out of their communities when crack cocaine was prevalent. And so now you see a vibrant community. Again, you know, when you talk about New York City and you talk about the history of, of, of New York City in the Bronx, the Bronx is always the stepchild. And so what we're trying to do is really come together and really let people know that the Bronx has survived, has come out of those ashes, and has come out a better borough because of the fact of the resiliency that we have in our people. As you know, hip-hop originated from the Bronx. The music of the current era originated from the Bronx. And again, that was a call for salvation. That was a call of, of reckoning for, for people, again, who are left behind but have come out swinging and become more powerful. So I'd like to ask you a question about language. I think it was in the early 2010s in which I began to hear an evolving language within food justice circles where previously we used to talk about places or environments that lacked access to food as food deserts. And then shortly thereafter, we started to discourage the terminology because it didn't accurately address the origins of those conditions and even though I'm not exactly sure when it first came on my radar, I do have a clear memory that your name is the first one that I heard associated in making this shift in language. So can you talk to us about the linguistic distinction between food desert in favor of the more apt terminology, food apartheid? So when I heard the term food deserts, it was like, first of all, I was like, I, first of all, we live in a desert. And then realizing that was an outsider term really designating the fact that these are places we have limited access to food or a grocery store. And it's like, you know, I had to reach out to all my friends, Detroit, Baltimore, Chicago, Oakland, and say, like, what's, what's up with this term? And then to put more salt on the wound, they change it from food deserts to food swamps. I mean, come on, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, give give us a break. And so I, I coined the term food apartheid because I wanted to shake, shake up. Because when you said food desert or food swamp, you're not, you're talking about a location. You're not talking about the social impact that that is having on food is having, the injustices the food is having in low-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. So when I coined the term food apartheid, all of a sudden eyes open, ears open, you know, it's like, because we need to have those difficult conversations around race, difficult conversations about wealth and economics, and, dif and difficult conversations about where people live. And so by saying food apartheid, 
it brings in all those social elements that people don't want to talk about, but we need to talk about in order to move the food system more close to being just and inclusive, which is not. And talk about the racism that's, that continues to infiltrate our food system. Okay, we're going to pause here for one second to let Karen's extremely perceptive and nuanced analysis sink in. To reiterate, food deserts imply a naturally occurring landscape, a place absent of vegetation, but also absent of life. And though she doesn't say it explicitly here, there's another slight within this phrase, which is that it doesn't originate from within the impacted community. And so the people who come up with this terminology, white researchers and organizations, calling it food apartheid becomes not just a more accurate term, but a way for activists within these communities to reclaim agency and how they talk about the disparity. Well, the whole history around how how the food system was built. Let's start with that, number one. You know, because for years, first of all, the right now, 7.5 billion people on this planet and only a handful of people control our food system, which are predominantly white men. When you look at food, especially in this country, and look at farming and food, it's the picture is always a white male. If you look at the agricultural system globally, it's dominated by women, especially women of color. Hello? And so start peeling back this negative incorrect narrative around our food system? Well, the food system was built on the backs of enslaved people and indigenous people. And that the reason why we were brought here was because of our knowledge of agriculture, seeds in our head. We were the foundation when it came to food, when it came to uh, farming practices, um, instruments that were made, we were the ones. And so it's not about us picking cotton. It's about us really starting the whole framework of agriculture, which was denied in history books, which continues to be denied today. And so, again, right now, trying to really build in the whole truth, the narrative around food and farming here in these United States. And as a result, talking about the history of land grabbing, talking about the history of racism, which prevented us to have our 40 acres and a mule, the fact that farms were being ransacked, uh, taken away both physically with, with the consequences of death by just lies. And so looking at how a system has been in place for so, so many years continues to exist today whereby if you look at the food system, a food system, a subsidized food system, a charity-based food system, a food have no nutritional value at all being dumped into low-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. This is pretty crucial, I think, because a lack of access to healthy food isn't merely an inconvenience. It also means that the inhabitants within these communities are at a greater risk of diet-related conditions like obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular diseases. As Karen says, these are not deserts. They are thriving communities who are living with a lack of local resources that have been manipulated and withheld with intention, not happenstance. I'm glad you mentioned the importance of not just speaking in terms of deficit because 
So often that is the single perspective that emanates from our stories when in fact our story as Black people is a multifaceted one. So especially in talking about resilience, it's equally important that we name this in the ways that we tell the stories about ourselves. What we were talking about in the beginning is doom and gloom, but baby, it's a wake-up call. It's an awakening of these young people, these young black and brown people that understand their power, that understand it's going back to the land. We have been brainwashed about going away from the land. And we have realized the land is our power. The land is our power. And so now so many black and brown young men and women get it. They no longer believe that narrative around slavery. They know exactly why we were brought here. They know the history of agriculture here in this country. And so what they're doing now, they're demanding justice. There's so many, I go across the country, so many young people that want to go back to the land. You know, and, and and I tell them not only go back to the land, but, you know, get those stories of from grandpa and grandma about how they were never sick a day in their life. They never went to a grocery store. You know, they had their own substance. They were able to maintain uh, a household, feed their family. And so many young people are, are, are doing that. So many young people are now also are being very, very vocal about the, the government and not relying on the government for help. For instance, right now here in, in and I wasn't going to sort of toot my home, but right now here in okay. New York, you know, we've gathered, gathered together and we have formed this black, a black farmer fund. What? A black farmer fund that is formed by black people to help black people move on. Because you know what? We have to understand, as a people, we always have been brainwashed to think of ourselves in terms of deficits. But people, we are Black people. We are proud people. And coming together collectively, we are powerful. And start to teach that within our communities, that you may be designated a poor, but there's nothing poor about you. Coming together collectively, we can move mountains. For so long, we've been taught to take money because of the capitalistic society to take money and go out of our community. Now we're talking about base building, community wealth, social capital within our community, coming together, putting our dollars together and making sure our dollars together are producing black businesses, black ownership. Um, with the Black Farmer Fund, we're now creating an opportunity whereby we'll collectively get money. And with that money, help farmers and Black-owned businesses get a start. And that comes from the essence of understanding what communal wealth and social capital looks like. How do you invest in a community and not think about getting monetary return, but that return is building a whole way of living whereby you're supporting the, you're, you're supporting infrastructure and you're supporting black businesses, black owned businesses. Again, this is this is language that not talked in our community, but now that is starting to change as people now are forming cooperatives. They're coming together collectively. They're doing the so-called susus of bringing in money collectively and using that money to build a community from the ground up. And making people understand the value, the true value of our community lies within ourselves. Take away those distorted ideas about 
us being uh, always on the downside, always in terms of deficit, and bring into our community the wealth of resilience of, of being strong and coming together to base build our community so that at the end of the day, our community has our faces, our values, our businesses, and instead of always looking from behind and having outsiders come in and push, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about gentrification, push us out of our own communities. We have to now be able to stand foot within our communities and start base building and look at the unique power that we have as a community together. And that's what's happening. And that's why the politicians, white, a lot of white politicians, the people are starting to, to, to you know, get get afraid. And, and, yeah, and you start seeing these, all of a sudden, these narratives about, yeah, you know, they're going to come into your They're going to come into the suburbs or the violence and stuff like that. Don't believe the hype. We're base building within our communities. Karen, this has been obviously a hell of a year, but also a year, I think, in some ways that you are uniquely qualified to absorb because a lot of the ways in which we've seen our communities protecting ourselves, not only from the virus, but protecting each other, um, is something that you've been committed to for a long time. I'd like to ask you, do you think that we are at a kind of social tipping point? Have we learned something from this COVID era that we might be able to take with us going forward? Let's start talking about a group of uh, a society now that's on the brink, on the brink of resistance. I don't want to say revolution yet because that's a little too harsh, but it's on the brink of resistance in such a way that they are going to stand their ground and fight back. And how they do that, hopefully, will be in a way that we come together and demand change and stand our ground and say we will not be moved. We're not going to be pushed out of our houses. We're not going to see our children not being fed. We're going to stand our ground and make sure that whoever is in that office, the political people, that they hear our voices, that they hear our plea. When you have millions and millions of people that can't pay their rent or can't feed their family, that is a strong, that is a strong of uh, a, a sentence, a strong group of powerful people standing together to demand to demand change. And you demand change by standing your ground and prevent yourself from being moved until change happens. And that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. You can't take away the basic needs of people, which is food and shelter, and expect them to just sit back and and just take it. It's not going to happen. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of 
a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. One of the things that's so central to my work is bringing in art and culture and music as a way to help us think more deeply about these issues and just be human and connect and kind of bridge this chasm that our industrial food system has created where you have food on one side and it's this commodity and all the things that have been traditionally um, very central to food like community and culture, they're so disconnected. So much of my work has about, been about bringing those things together. Our second guest today is Bryant Terry. Bryant is a James Beard award-winning chef, educator, scholar, cookbook author, and renowned for his activism to create healthy, just, and sustainable food systems. He's currently the chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, where he creates public programming that celebrates the intersection of food, farming, health, activism, art, culture, and the entire African diaspora His fifth book, Vegetable Kingdom, was published earlier this year. He's someone that I'm happy to call a friend and someone who has been in the food justice work for a very long time. And as you'll soon hear from him, it is his love of Black people and Black culture that has remained a constant throughout his career. For me to recognize that there's a thread of Black-led food and health activism throughout the 20th century. And I'm standing on the shoulders of of many of the ancestors who've driven much of that work. But then we could think about groups like the Black Panthers. We could think about, you know, activists like uh, Dick Gregory. We think about hip hop artists like KRS-One and others who have, you know, brought these issues to the fore and, and forced us to think about them in ways that I think we should all be thinking about them. Can you talk about the impetus to specifically center Black health in your food justice work? Yeah, I'll put it like this. I always say that food is simply like lack of access to healthy, fresh, affordable and culturally appropriate food is simply one indicator of material deprivation in our communities. Right. Let's just talk about systemic racism and like the daily effect that that has on our mind, body and spirit and you know, release of cortisol and like the the energy that it takes just dealing with being a black person in this country. And so, you know, I, I just want to say that because I don't think you could just talk about food and expect that even if, you know, we were to create an abundance of options for healthy, fresh, affordable and culturally appropriate food in communities that somehow, you know, all these other um 
issues that our community members are facing in terms of, um, you know, health crises would be um, fully addressed. Typically, when you go to a community that doesn't have, you know, access to healthy, fresh, affordable food, good food, these are the same communities that are also dealing with, you know, a number of barriers to just living a, a healthful, good life. So, you know, most of these communities have crumbling infrastructure, underfunded, segregated public schools, very little safe green space for people to be active in for um, their physical health, uh, very few jobs that pay a living wage. When we focus on food, we need to think about the bigger issues that also intersect with food. And that's why, you know, this this whole idea of talking about food apartheid and kind of like abandoning of this archaic term food desert is important because I think what it does is that it puts the issues of economic inequality and systemic racism squarely in front of us and and helps us to really understand the way in which we have to deal with, you know, these issues as well as the range of material issues that people in um, communities that, that are dealing with food insecurity or food injustice have to confront. People kind of move away from this idea that you know, just focusing on what we're consuming is somehow going to uh, address the chronic illnesses that many of our um, family members and community members are facing. You know, these are systemic issues and, and food is certainly central to it. But I would say, you know, at least in, 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 in the framing of um, their approach and the way in which Black Lives Matter's um, movement generation are really encouraging us to think about kind of a, a pathway forward. I truly, in my work, have striven and, and, you know, just really encouraging others to come from a place of, of, of genuine love and care for communities, right? And I think that what that means is putting our ego aside. What that means is not feeling like we have to be right and that we have the answers. And most important, meeting people where they are. Definitely, definitely. And speaking to this intersectional analysis, can you talk about your work in focusing on the maternal mortality crisis, specifically among Black and Native women? What brought this crisis into your consciousness and what is the relationship to food? Yeah, well, there are a couple things. Um, One, I had worked on this book, uh, Between Meals, that was a project of refugee transitions in Oakland, which is a uh, NGO that works with newly arrived uh, immigrant women. And they actually produced a book that was a cookbook, uh, along with essays that allowed these women to kind of talk about their traditional foods, talk about the way in which they're adjusting to their new homeland and share their culture. And so just, you know, working on that project helped me understand the immense issues that that women are facing in our society and, and being more sensitive to them. The second thing was actually having a child. And we, my, my wife is Chinese American, and we had a lot of conversations with my mother-in-law about the role of traditional postpartum foods and postpartum traditions that we often, um, in, in, you know, American culture, you know, we just don't have these things like the 30 day period after having a child and like the, the, the specific foods that you need to eat to help with um, kind of providing nutrient density for the, the, the healing mother and the child and ensuring that they're, you know, nursing well and all these things. And so I started getting involved with this project, Mothers to Mothers, which 
you know, similar to the food justice movement, doesn't look at uh, the maternal health crisis um, that mostly impacts African-American and Native women in isolation, but understands that the fundamental causes of this uh, maternal mortality crisis is sexism, it's racism, both the historical, institutional, cultural, and interpersonal, it's individualism, it's a for-profit healthcare system, and it's the abandonment of traditional postpartum wisdom. And so I see this just kind of like part and parcel of this larger food justice work that I do. Because if you think about um, taking care of mothers, when you take care of mothers, you take care of the women who ideally are providing the first food that children will actually receive, right? <laughs> you know, they call like um, the, the breast milk is liquid gold and it has everything that a developing child needs. In my mind, something that the food movement, I don't think privileges or puts a lot of energy into is the reality that food justice is, it's driven by the people who are most impacted by the issues, right? These are the people living in communities. They recognize the um, issues that they're facing and oftentimes they have brilliant solutions, but what they need are resources shifted, power shifted, and then actually giving them the ability to be self-determined and address these issues and not having this kind of paternalistic relationship where you have, you know, the all-knowing uh, snow-capped uh, NGO coming in and arguing that they know the best way that these communities should be, you know, kind of addressing the problems. I'll be the first to say that if one has resources, social capital, you know, whatever you feel like you could bring to communities to help improve conditions... I think that's a noble thing, but I think that the, the problem is that so many of these organizations that are supposedly working towards the, the liberation of these communities, they're further exploiting them. Again, it is really hard to ignore the echo of Karen's frustration with this exact dynamic. Uh, talking about the not-for-profit and industrial complex and the way in which it, it often reproduces harm in these kind of very exploitative relationships with the communities they work in. And I say if you have like a white CEO or executive director of an, of an organization or a person, you know, frankly, a person of color that may not come from that um, community, because it was something that I had to really confront is understanding that they're the racial dynamics around people coming into communities and, and supposedly doing good work, as we've seen both here and abroad. <laughs> but then there's also the class dynamics. And I recognize that, you know, when I was working with young people, there was very little that I had in common with a lot of these young people outside of the fact that we were brown skinned. Because, you know, I grew up with um, a lot of privileges. And these were young people who were dealing with not just, you know, how could I get some organic fruits and vegetables, but where was my next meal coming from? And so I think that, you know, organizations that aren't actively planning to like train and bring people in the community into leadership so that they can then run the organization, people are just playing games. They're just, you know, they're, they're, they're doing this work, but, you know, it really harkens back to the origins of the social work, the field of social work in the United States in the early 20th century. And we needed to ensure that people who are most impacted by these issues are the ones who are in the room. You know, one of the one of the things that really informed my thoughts about um, this this food justice work was a, a the second scholarly monograph that my um, graduate school advisor Robin D G Kelly wrote. It's this book called Race Rebels, 
And in Race Rebels, he looks at the mid-20th century and many of the ways in which Black people resisted capitalism and white supremacy uh, outside of organized labor movements. And he, he talked about things such as theft and breaking equipment and tools and quitting on the spot and sabotage and how these were like these everyday acts of resistance that we need to reexamine. And so, you know, that helped me kind of reimagine these seemingly apolitical acts, such as cooking and gardening and building community around a table and, you know, reframing them as highly political, dare I say radical, in a food system that's largely controlled by a handful of multinational corporations. These corporations don't want you cooking. They don't want you making things from scratch. They want you to buy their ready-made food and stuffing it down your face in the car to your next job because the one that you have doesn't pay a living wage. (laughs) They don't want you building community around the table. They want you isolated. And, you know, I I just think for me, we all need to see these as, as political acts alongside the more organized movement building through organizations and through uh, on the ground grassroots activism. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. So when you lack food and it becomes something you cannot take for granted, then it becomes an important object of study or inquiry. We heard from Dr. Hannah Garth earlier this season on our anthropology episode. Today, we'll be drawing from her excellent book, which came out earlier this year. It's called Food in Cuba, The Pursuit of a Decent Meal. And she's back with us this week to talk about her research in Cuba, to talk about food rationing, ways of acquiring, and really a socialist food system more broadly. Here's Dr. Garth. So understanding how 
groups of people are able to basically shift everything about the way that they live. So shifting from being subsistence agriculturalists to being people that work and live in cities where, you know, you can't grow all of the food that you consume and you have to rely on a food system. I've been interested in thinking through how people experience those forms of inequality and how people understand that. One of the things that is really compelling and interesting about Cuba is that it has a food rationing system where everyone is guaranteed a basic amount of food to be able to survive. And that that food ration has been around for over 50 years and every single Cuban is eligible for the ration. And it originally provided more food than it does today. They've slowly been reducing the amount of food that's available in the ration. And so this is a place where although people are provided with the minimum that they need to survive, they're still experiencing a sense of lack or a sense of food scarcity because they can't, it's very difficult for them to access food on top of that food ration. Unlike the United States, Cuba provides a minimum dietary sustenance for all of their citizens in the form of food rations. The system is still fraught, and there is a racial hierarchy in terms of who gets what, which Dr. Garth will soon explain, but still, with over 35 million people in the U.S. who are food insecure, hungry, and unsure where their next meal will come from, Cuba's food rationing system is a deeply imperfect, but still enviable option that ensures none of its residents are left starving. Although Cuba is socialist and the state does a good job of distributing basic needs to everyone, it's still tied to capitalist systems. So Cuba imports most of its food It ranges from 60 to 80% of the food that's consumed on the island. And those imports are made almost exclusively in capitalist countries. So the breadbasket of Cuba is really coming from the global industrial food system. Their rice is imported, for the most part imported. A lot of their meats are imported. When I was in Cuba... I was eating Tyson chicken that had been raised in the United States, had been exported to Russia, and then had been imported into Cuba. Um, so, so it's it's Cuba is not, um, and the government, the Cuban government, definitely feels accountable for providing basic needs for people. The problem that the Cubans that I do research with face is that they feel that the government does not address their needs and does not sort of take into consideration other elements of what's necessary in food beyond basic nutrition. So they want to be able to 
make the foods that they connect with on a cultural level, on a social level, um, on a familial level. They want to make the things that their grandmother made. And the ingredients for those foods that they view as central to who they are as people are not available. The difference between our programs here and programs in Cuba is that our programs are tied to um, particular uh, you like you have to apply for them and you have to follow certain criteria in order to be able to get your food benefits. Whereas in Cuba, every single person gets them regardless of their work history, how many children they have, any other element about themselves. So it's really available for all people. In Cuba, since everyone is getting the same rationing from the government, it's a socialist food system. Is there racism in Cuba in a socialist food system? So in Cuba, it's important to also consider that they have free socialized health care for everyone. So thinking about health and food together, it's really important to include that in the context. Thank you for that. Agree. Although the Cuban government has done a lot to eliminate forms of institutionalized discrimination and forms of racism, there's still a lot of ongoing racism, racialized discrimination, and forms of white supremacy that happen on the island. So there's institutionalized discrimination that happens against Black Cubans in general. There's institutionalized racism against Black Cubans that live outside of Havana or on the eastern side of the island who are seen as country folk. Mm-hmm. In a in a derogatory way, they mean that in a derogatory way. So people view certain categories of Black Cubans as not sophisticated enough to eat certain kinds of food, and therefore it's unnecessary to distribute those kinds of foods to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are some deeply racist understandings that Cubans have of Black Cubans. A very long-standing race-based problem is resource distribution. People inherit their homes and they live in the same neighborhoods that their parents lived in and their grandparents lived in. And those neighborhoods have been racially segregated and continue to be racially divided. And lower income neighborhoods tend to have disproportionately high amount of black Cubans and wealthier neighborhoods have a disproportionate number of white Cubans. We still see very similar patterns to what we have in the United States, um, but I do think they shake out a little bit differently because of free socialized health care, free access to the food ration, free education, and subsidies for things like electricity, transportation, housing that help lower income Cubans to sort of have a basic quality of life that a lot of lower income United people in the United States do not share. So Hannah, um, what we've seen in our coverage is what we would classify as a global food movement and specifically a movement that is tightly bound to food and identity. So often we see stories of reclamation reclamation of land, reclamation of ingredients, of recipes, and in some cases, even ideas. So do you have any sense uh, if there is a similar reclamation movement happening in Cuba right now? And secondly, as a scholar, 
Would you mind sharing with us your hopes for a healthier and more vibrant food system in Cuba? I find that among certain Cuban families, it's really common to aspire towards eating more fresh fruits and vegetables and fresh herbs. And people talk a lot about how they have a conceptualization that that's how people ate before and people were healthier before. And so if we could get back to, you know, not adding any processed seasoning to our foods and we could use all fresh herbs and fresh fruits and vegetables that we would be healthier. And then recently with economic problems tied to COVID-19, the Cuban government has been encouraging people to grow their own vegetable gardens in any plots of land that they may have. And I think people are, some people are grasping onto this as a collective way of moving towards sustainability as a nation and being less reliant on the global food system. So this crisis has really underscored for people how important it is to improve Cuba's national food system. Mm -hmm. I mean, to just put it into one word, I think capitalism is the problem with most food systems. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the problem with Cuba's food system, even though it's socialist, it's the problem with our food system. And so if we, I mean, it's quite aspirational, but if we could untether profit and capitalism from food Mm -hmm. and make food into something that is not something that corporations profit off of, Mm -hmm. we would all be better off. I don't know exactly the steps for moving into that direction because, you know, we're pretty well in that direction. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Garth's work in Cuba, you can check out her newly released book, Food in Cuba, The Pursuit of a Decent Meal, which is a perfect encapsulation of her scholarship on the many ways in which marginalized communities struggle to overcome structural inequalities to satisfy their most basic needs. Okay, this is the last episode of the season. It is hard to believe 30 episodes down. Wow. I would like to thank each and every single person who has listened not only to this episode, but especially if you've listened to multiple episodes because they keep track of those sorts of things. We really, really appreciate it. It helps us a lot and we are so grateful. So thank you. And especially to everyone who has left a review of the show that is also major. So we thank you for that as well. We are always trying to improve not only on this podcast, but with our magazine, which is our flagship And with our W Journal, which I must say has been the most pleasant surprise of the year, the stories have been tremendous and there have been no shortage of them. So our foray into digital publishing, I'm happy to say, has gone really, really well. We are seriously overjoyed that we get to find ways to continue to work with and learn from so many brilliant scholars, chefs, activists, journalists from all over the world, all of you that we get to work with who are so steeped in whatever the thing is that you're sharing. It is contagious and much appreciated. And it is because of you that we get to exist because without you, Whetstone would just be an idea. So thank you guys all so much. We are working on many, many more ways that we can collaborate. And although this is our last show of the year, There's still plenty of whetstone to be had by way of our print magazine, 
or the aforementioned journal on our site, whetstonemagazine.com backslash journal. There is always more on the way there. I'd like to thank our guests today, the legendary Karen Washington, BT, my brother, Bryant Terry, and the endlessly genius Dr. Hannah Garth, sociocultural and medical anthropologist, author of Food in Cuba, The Pursuit of a Decent Meal, and along with Ashanti Reese, editor of the fabulous compilation Black Food Matters, Racial Justice in the Wake of Food Justice, and according to her Twitter bio, will be joining Princeton University next fall as an assistant professor. So congrats to her and congrats to Princeton, who is very lucky to have her. Finally, I'd like to give a special shout out to our production assistant, Quentin LeBeau, If you all have been following us on IG, you know that for each of these episodes, there is a really stellar accompanying series of illustrations, both on our IG page, but also on our website. Quentin has been responsible for those illustrations and has done such a beautiful job. They are so additive. We love having them go with each episode, Quentin. So thank you for blessing us, Q. We really appreciate the artwork. Finally, you can learn more about this episode and our guest on our website, whetstonemagazine.com backslash podcast. Or as always on IG at Whetstone Magazine, that's W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E. I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield. We'll be back sometime. In the meantime, we'll see you online. Peace. We'd also like to thank our incredible podcast producer, Celine Glager. Celine, you are the best. To our editor and Whetstone partner and director of video, David Alexander in London. Appreciate you, Dave. Thanks to our Whetstone production intern, Quentin LeBeau. And last but not least, my business partner, Mel Shi, who makes all things at Whetstone possible. Thank you, Mel. We'd also like to thank our partners in production at iHeartRadio. To Gabrielle Collins, our supervising producer and executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis. We'll be back next week with more from the world of food worldwide. Point of origin listeners, as you know, rating and reviewing our podcast is the very best way for more people to find out about our very important work at Whetstone. So please, if you're able, we would really appreciate a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast. That will help others like yourself find out about Point of Origin. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, 
fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 